everybody. My name is Dana Trupiana, and I cover stories of infamous gangsters every week on my show, Mob Times. I do want to say a quick thank you to anybody that's here and is usually here, because I have some followers that watch every single episode that comes out, and I really can't thank you guys enough. Like, I love you guys so much. I can't tell you how much I love interacting with you in the comments. I love knowing that you're there to watch all my videos and you guys really have started to feel like a family to me. And that feeling of support and like inclusion is something I've never really had before in my life. So I do want to throw you a quick thank you. You guys have no idea what your just your presence means to me and does for me. So thank you guys so much. So go get your snacks, grab your drinks, grab your dinner, whatever you're going to be doing for the next hour or so and settle in because we are going to go even more in depth into Carmine Persico tonight. And we're going to go over some crazy stuff. So first of all, before I even get into anything, I do want to throw this out there. I really, really, really hope that you guys like this whole multi-part episode thing I've been doing because after looking at everything that I had to cover today, I can say with my whole chest that this is going to be at least four parts. So it might be five. Hopefully I'll be able to get it down to four. It might be five. So I'm really, really hoping that you guys like this thing. I really hope that the multi-part episode is something you're into and you're just like, yeah, more Carmine Persigo. That's great. And I'm just crossing my fingers that people aren't absolutely hating this and like, oh, screw that. I'm not going to watch her. So, I mean, let me know if you guys absolutely hate it because your opinions matter to me. And if you hate it, I'm not going to keep doing it. I'm really, really hoping that you like going into each gangster multiple times. I'm also going to make the same announcement that I made at the beginning of part two. I really, really, really want you to go back and watch part one and part two of this video series because a lot of what I talk about today may not make sense to you if you don't watch part one and two. I'm not going backward and reviewing everything that I discussed in the first two episodes. I will do quick recaps, but it's not going to be enough for you guys to be fully updated and know what I'm talking about. I hope you guys, like me, like Carmine Persico himself, because we're on him for a little while. <laughs> so I hope you like him. <laughs> so that being said, when I do this episode, I'm assuming that you watched part one and two and are fully updated on everything that was said there. Again, I will do short recaps just because there's a week in between each episode. I'm not going to assume that you guys remember every word I said, but just a fair warning, go watch parts one and two because this one might not make sense if you don't. Also, I kind of have a long life update today. I have a lot to fill you guys in on. So I do want to throw this out there as I do in every episode. I have chapters in every single episode. There should be chapters on the actual video. Like when you look at the progress bar on the video, you should see little notches and you should see the actual chapter in the notches. If you don't see that, I have the actual times in the description and the times are the chapters and you can just click the link and it'll bring you to the next chapter. You are under no obligation whatsoever to listen to me ramble about my life. So feel free to skip and just hit the next chapter and... All you are going to do is hear about Persigo. You don't got to hear about my shit. You don't got to listen to me be on my soapbox. Just go listen to information about Persigo. I'm totally fine with it. I don't take any personal offense. So now that everybody that does not want to hear about my life is skipped to the next chapter and everybody still here does want to hear, I want to give a quick update on my IVF journey. 
I am officially pregnant, and I'm announcing it to you guys before pretty much anybody else. After eight years of trying, ovulation tracking, basal body temperature tracking, five years of medical intervention, four medical pregnancy procedures, and three surgeries, I am officially pregnant. The implantation of two eggs was on July 31st, and I finally got the call on August 9th that I was very pregnant. I have been waiting for that call for what feels like my entire life. When my doctor called me and told me that I was pregnant, he made sure to tell me that I was very pregnant in terms of my numbers. And since I had two embryos implanted, I'm pretty convinced it's going to be twins. Hopefully it's not more than twins because my doctor has talked to me before about if it's more than twins, I may have to do some sort of like reduction measures. But honestly, I'm okay with twins. The more babies, the better. Give me all the babies. I got blood work today and the numbers did double as they were supposed to. So I'm in really good shape and I could not be happier. Of course, I'm going to be giving you guys updates along the way, but I did want to officially and finally announce it here because I feel like you guys have been on this journey with me. Like every time I've had an up or a down, every time I've had a medical intervention not work out, I've come on here and like kind of cried about it. And I've had so many of my viewers like reassure me and just let me know that they're thinking of me. So honestly, I feel more obligated and happy and excited to tell you guys than pretty much anybody else in my life. To be fair, I have a very small number of people in my life. I don't have a huge community around me, but that's okay with me. I just can't really express how much it's meant to me to know that I have those of you who have been there around. Like, it means a lot to me. It means a lot that even though I don't have, like, a family or really friends, I do have this community of viewers and followers and people that just... Even if you don't watch every single one of my videos, even if you're not, you know, commenting all the time or whatever, you are there in a sense. And that makes me feel really reassured and I appreciate it a lot. Okay, so now that I have made the official announcement to you guys, I do want to go over something really quick. So I was just editing last week's video and I wanted to throw it out there for you guys because I'm not sure if I've ever really talked about this or disclosed this on this channel. And it's kind of important if you're someone who watches my videos a lot, because honestly, sometimes I annoy the shit out of myself because like I lengthen words or I take a long break. And I know I take care of a lot of that in editing, but there's only so much you can do in editing. And I was doing this a lot in my last video where like, I'll be like, uh, I just lengthen my words. I do it a lot. And it's just like buffering for that next sentence or that next word. The reason that I do that is because I actually have multiple TBIs from my time in the military. And again, I'm not sure if it's ever something that I've discussed or disclosed on this channel. I would imagine as somebody who doesn't know that there has to be some kind of questions because if I annoy myself, I have to imagine that I annoy other people too with the way that I'm lengthening my words, the breaks I'm taking in between words, the just kind of like, you can tell that I'm just kind of out there a little bit sometimes. <laughs> like I would imagine that some of you before having heard this would be sitting there like, why the hell does this girl turn the word the 
into like a five sentence ordeal. And I, again, if I annoy myself, I know I have to have some kind of impact on you guys when you're watching, like shut up and get to the next word. Cause I do that to myself, but I do want to let you know it is because I have multiple brain injuries and my brain just kind of like, it works differently now. And it takes a little bit of time to get to the next sentence, to the next word. I just buffer a lot more. I'm much more of a space cadet now. So if you guys have noticed that and you still kept coming around, I appreciate the fact that I haven't really had a lot of hate about that in my comments. Nobody's ever really mentioned it to me. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate it if that is something that like annoys you a little bit and you continue to come back and just look past it. And I mean, I know that me coming out and saying like, oh, I have brain injuries, like that's a weird thing, but... I would hope that it's not something that would make you guys not want to continue watching and at least put a reason to it, you know? Like if it's something that has bothered you in the past, maybe it could just be like, all right, fine. It's her brain is like different. Cool. <laughs> just deal with it. Hopefully it's not something that you guys just didn't notice and now I brought attention to it and now you do. But it's just something that I annoyed myself with and I did want to throw it out there like I do have brain injuries. It is something that has changed the way that I talk, the way that I think, the way that I articulate. And I've done a lot of occupational therapy for it to try to become more normal again. But you will see it sometimes when I like lengthen my words or... I just kind of seem like out there. And again, I take care of a lot of it in editing. You won't see a majority of what I'm talking about, but it does still come through. So I wanted to give you guys a quick, you know, I feel like some of you deserve to know that. So anyway, I did also want to throw in some other really exciting news. So I don't know if I've ever gone over like my educational background on this channel, but my college journey was like very unconventional. When I first came out of high school, I went straight into college. And I went to a school called Briarcliff. And I don't know if you guys ever heard of those like big scandals that went on, but it was one of those colleges that there were like real classes and you got real grades, but it was kind of like one of those Trump colleges where it wasn't even like a real school, but you didn't know that when you were going there. At the time that I was going, I took real classes. I handed in real papers. I took real tests and I got real grades that I really worked for but they weren't accredited with like their specialty things. In other words, like if I took English or math, the credit would count. But if I took something like pre-law or accounting or like something in a specialty thing, it wouldn't count because they weren't registered with like the Bar Association or like the National Accounting Group or whatever. So those specialty classes wouldn't count. And you didn't know that while you were going to this school because they banked on you going to this school and only this school all four years and you never having to transfer the credits out and finding out like, oh, hey, you took pre-law classes, but they don't count because this school is not registered with the Bar Association. So I spent the first year out of high school, thankfully, taking most of like pre-reg classes. So I took my maths, my English, my gym, whatever you had to take straight out of high school. And I didn't really take too many specialty classes. I was pre-law at the time. So if I had gone and taken like all pre-law classes, I would have been screwed. So thank God I was trying to get a lot of my prereqs out of the way. And I was taking mostly like math and English and history, all that kind of stuff. So I really didn't take too many classes that didn't count. 
So anyway, I actually really liked this school and I got really into it. I was in the student government and I was like planning blood drives. I was planning school dances. Like I did everything. It was amazing. So then all of a sudden, like I'm going to school, everything's normal. And one day someone went and made a MySpace or a Facebook or like some kind of social media platform. And they were talking a whole bunch of shit about pretty much everybody in the school that I was in. And for some reason, all eyes fell on me. And I definitely was not the one that made this page that was talking shit about all these people. But everyone was convinced that it was me. It was wild because like, I didn't know 90% of the people that were on there. That page was talking about a lot of really personal bad things about people that I had never met. I didn't know their names. I didn't know anything about them. I'm pretty sure I know why everybody pointed the finger because there was this one kid that I went to high school with and he was just for some reason intent on making my life miserable in high school, in college. I don't know why, but this boy hated me and wanted to make my life miserable and he succeeded a lot. So anyway, obviously a whole bunch of drama starts going down. It literally led to me being spit on by people that I had never met in my life that were swearing up and down that I had talked shit about them on this social media page. To this day, I have not seen that social media page. I know people that have seen it. It did exist. It's not something that was just like made up. And when this kid that hated me was approached about it, it conveniently disappeared. And that's why I was never able to see it because it was brought to the attention of like the school authorities this kid was like questioned about it. I guess he went on and deleted it or he made whoever made the page delete it. But it was brought to me at the very last second. And by the time it was brought to me, I was never able to like go sniff it out and find this page. So anyway, it gets to the point with all this drama and this kid that is legit the bane of my freaking existence. Like this kid has made me miserable in high school, in college. I, I hate this kid. But anyway, it gets to the point that like, I can't keep going to this school. I have security guards walking me in and out of the school to make sure I don't get jumped. There's mobs of people waiting for me outside the school trying to beat me up. And like, I can fight. Don't get me wrong. If one or two or even like three of these girls had like come at me, I would have been able to handle myself. But you got 20 people coming at me. I'm getting a security guard to walk me. Okay, I'm not doing that shit. But at the end of the day, I just didn't, it, it wasn't worth it to me. It wasn't worth it to keep going through this and just dealing with this over and over and over and people like throwing shit at my car and it just got way too much. So I had to leave this school. So I left. So after I left that school, I ended up going to the community college that was in the town that I was in. And I just like had to fill time. I didn't really have all this time to plan because this stuff with this social media page came out of nowhere. I didn't have time to apply to other colleges or anything. So I ended up going to the community school that was in the town that I was in. When I was first graduating high school, I actually got a full ride scholarship to Hartford College. But I had a boyfriend at the time and I didn't want to leave him. I loved him so much. He was mine forever and I was going to be with him forever. And it was, you see my dog just making a whole mess back there. But this boyfriend was everything to me. I was going to marry him and be with him forever. But... That really just, Hartford is in Connecticut, and I could not imagine leaving New York to go to Connecticut. I was like, absolutely not. So I didn't end up going. 
So now while I'm at this community college, my accounting teacher mentioned this school that supposedly was like the best accounting school in the entire world that wasn't Ivy League. And he just made this school seem so amazing. And the way that he talked about it was like, you get so much respect just from going to this school. The acceptance rate is super low. It's something like 13%, but anybody who did get in was pretty much like set for life. Like you are set if you get into this school. Pretty much everybody in that accounting class applied to this school. And I'm like, all right, I don't have a shot in hell. I didn't really do that great at school. I was not like on a roll. I did good at Briarcliff. I was on the Dean's list. But in high school, like I did good in my last semester. But other than that, like I got expelled a few times. I did very bad in school. So I had no shot of getting into the school, but I had to apply. I had to. So eventually people in that class start coming in and they're upset they didn't get into the school, but they're happy that they applied. Like it's like a whole running thing that every day at the beginning of this class, there would be people that updated on the progress of them getting in. And 90% of the people are like, yeah, I didn't get in or I got waitlisted, but most of the people just got straight out declined. And I thought it was weird because I'm like, I don't know why I haven't gotten anything. This is super weird. People are, there was like one person in there that got approved. So it's like, why am I not getting anything? It's super weird. So come to find out that it's because I had moved and the college didn't have my current address. So I send my parents to the post office because at the time I'm going to school full time and I'm working full time and I just don't have time. So they go to the post office to get my mail that was sent to my old address and they call me and they're like, hey, it's a big envelope. I'm like, no way. Stop lying. Stop lying. Because you know, if you ever applied to college, if you get a letter, most of the time it's a decline. If you get a big envelope, it's an approval. You got into the school. I'm like, stop lying. You're lying. It was like the most proud moment of my entire life. I got into this school. And the school I'm talking about is Baruch College and Zinklin School of Business. And I still to this day have no idea how I got in and 90% of that class didn't, but somehow I did. So I go to Baruch and I'm living on Long Island and I'm commuting to Baruch. And Baruch is in Midtown in Manhattan. And it is freaking hard. Commuting to and from the city every day is hard. And I'm supposed to be just so honored that I got into this school and so grateful that I can go there every day. But like, I remember getting on public transportation because like I was too scared to drive. So I would take the train and then from Penn Station, I would take a bus or a subway or whatever. And I remember so many days before getting on the train, like crying because I was on the it took me two hours to get to that school. And sometimes it would take me two hours to get there on public transportation for an hour and 20 minute class and then two hours back. And I just remember like getting on the train and just crying like I hated every moment of it. I hated it. It was amazing going to the school, but I hated it. And it got to the point that after two semesters, I was just burnt. I couldn't do it anymore. I could not. I tried. I did everything in me. I just couldn't do it. So I called my mom and I'm like, listen, I'm dropping out. I'm going to go and like go work for a semester. And she's like, yeah, if you're not going to school, you have to work full time. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Like, thankfully, I was living at my parents' house at the time. So it was easy for me to not go to school and just, you know, whatever, find some full-time job to keep myself busy for a semester and then go back to school. So now at this point, I did two semesters at Briarcliff. 
two at the community college and two at Baruch. So I am three years into my college journey and I have no degree because when you go from school to school, not every credit transfers. So let's say I took 30 credits at one school, maybe 18 of them counted at the next school. So with all the jumping around that I did, I'm not getting a degree and I'm three years in. So I end up going on interviews to find a full-time job for the first time in my life. Like I had been waitressing. I had been doing other stuff. I did medical billing. I did other stuff, but I just never worked like full, full time only working. I was always going to school at the same time. So now I'm applying and I get two jobs and I decide that the job that I'm going to take is this really good job, but it's really far away, but I can drive there. It's on Long Island. Even though it's far away from my house, I can drive there. It'll suck, but I can do it. I took a job in finance as a junior underwriter. So at this point, I'm like, fuck school. Like, this is the job that you get when you get out of school. You go to school, you get your bachelor's degree, and you get this job as a junior underwriter. And mind you, I'm making really good money. Like, I'm fresh out of college, and I am getting up to the salary of my parents and most of the people that I know. And I'm a 21-year-old kid. My parents bought a house and I was a co-signer on it. So I'm building my credit. I bought a car that had payments. So like, I'm in a very, very good spot. And I'm like, there's no need for me to go back to college. I don't need to. While I'm at my first job, I end up taking a few more classes at the community college and I end up getting my associate's degree. So I do have a degree, but it really isn't necessary to me to go to school for the rest of the time because I'm like, Okay, so within two years of being at this job, I'm bumped up to senior underwriter. And if you go work at a bank, it takes people 20 years to get bumped up from junior to senior underwriter. I'm 23 years old and I'm a senior underwriter. This is a big deal. And this is what people go to school for. I am on the fast track. A few years after I get the job as the senior underwriter, I end up leaving that place and I go start working in Manhattan as the manager of underwriting at one of the biggest companies in my industry. And I'm at that job for about two years before I leave and take a position as the director of underwriting at a company that I ended up staying there for about five years. Now, this is a six-figure position. I'm running the entire underwriting department. I love the people I'm working with. It's a really great job. It's perfect. Can't really want anything else. There's no need to go back to school. But then I felt like I hit the ceiling. Really, there wasn't anywhere to go. I was already the director of underwriting. There was no position higher for me to get into. I felt like there was no growth at the company. And my best friend had died. He was murdered. And I had been in the worst depression of my entire life for years. And I decided, my dumbass decided to join the army. I figure I can go back to school, I could do it for free, and I had been wanting to get pregnant for years, but I couldn't afford fertility treatments, and that's something the army would help with as well. And you know that whole, like, serve your country thing, my dad was in the Air Force, so, you know, I was all about it. Cool, let's do this. So I joined the army, I got hurt, and never ended up going back to school while I was in. So the long and the short of it is that I had been wanting to go back to school and finish out my bachelor's for a really long time. I applied to St. Joseph's and I got in. That's like really exciting because I didn't think I was going to get into 
a halfway decent school and this school is really good it's a school i've wanted to go to for a really long time but i'm not accepting my acceptance yet because i also applied for nyu and hofstra and i really want to go to those schools but i'm waiting on decisions before making a final decision plus the fact that i am newly pregnant i know that's going to be a whole lot harder with a baby so i don't know but i wanted to catch you guys up on what's going on because my life is just going really amazing right now and i'm knocking on wood really hard because anytime anything goes good you know things blow up but right now it's just feeling like everything is perfect so if you haven't skipped to the next chapter and you're still listening to me ramble on my soapbox you are a real one thank you so much for listening to my ramble and i hope you enjoyed let me know what you think i should do in the comments because like i'm <laughs> i'm lost with the school i don't know do i go to school do i go to hasha myu st joseph's i don't know so let's go ahead and get into part three of carmine persigo and again you guys are a real one if you stuck by thanks so much Okay, so I am going to do a very quick recap for those of you who already watched part one and two, but it's been a little bit and you need a quick refresher. This is not in substitution of watching parts one and two, because it's not going to go into everything I went into. It's just like a quick little refresher. Joe Perfacci was the boss of the family until he died of liver cancer and the family did not have a rep on the commission because the commission did not approve 30-year underboss Joseph Magliocho to be the boss of the family and sit on the commission. Because of this, Joseph Bonanno was given the role of standing for the family on the commission, but Joseph Bonanno also has his own family, so he's representing both the Perfacci and the Bonanno family on the commission, and now instead of there being five representatives for the New York families, there is now four. Within a few years, a plot that Magliocho had put together with Bonanno was outed where they planned to kill Lucchese and Gambino and take control of the commission. The man who had been given the job to take out Gambino and Lucchese, but came forward to them instead of trying to attempt to kill them, Joseph Colombo, was given the title of the boss of the family, and now there's a representative for the family sitting on the commission again. Yay! One of Colombo's first acts as boss of the family was to name Carmi Persico, a very young 30-something-year-old as a capo, and the two became besties and were seen publicly together pretty often. Because of this, as well as the Gallo Wars having a lot of headline-grabbing news, Persigo is very notorious now, and he is seen hobnobbing with Hollywood elite in clubs and stuff like that, and he's just living the high life. When he's not out painting the town, he is at the dormitory, which is his little chill spot. And he's chilling with his crew, which consists of Hugh McIntosh, his brother Al, after he got out of jail, Jerry Lang, Carmine Franzese, or Franzese, however you want to say it, and Greg Scarpa. It also had some big names, like Tony Sirocho, who would play Paulie Walnuts on The Sopranos, as well as Sammy the Bull Gravano, who would later go on to be one of the biggest rats in Mafia history. Sammy later on changed over to the Gambino family 
due to some drama he was having in the Colombo family, but he did start off in the Colombo family, and he did start off under Persigo. If you have any interest on my opinion on Gravano, which, spoiler alert, it's not great, you can go into the playlist on my profile that's titled Featuring Dana Tripiana, and you can look at my interview with Vinny from Philly. I talk about how I feel about Gravano and his Bible-thumping little friend in that interview. Not gonna go over it here in my actual video. So, we've got Columbo as the boss of the family. We've got Persigo as a capo, but he's sitting in jail for that 11-year-long trial that led to him serving 14 years in jail. And Joey Gallo is also sitting in jail at this time. So let's start part three out talking about a huge milestone in both the life of Carmine Persigo as well as the Colombo family, Joseph Colombo himself. In 1970, he established the Italian-American Civil Rights League which aimed to combat stereotypes and discrimination against Italian-Americans. However, the League was suspected by law enforcement of being a front to divert attention away from organized criminal activities. So let's talk about the Italian-American Civil Rights League for a minute and why it happened and how it happened. Colombo started the organization in April of 1970 after his son, Joseph Colombo Jr., was arrested for some stupid shit. I've heard that it was for an illegal gambling charge, but when you Google it, it says that it's because he melted down some coins. So the story that we're gonna go with is because he melted down some coins. I don't know what the real story is, but the consensus around the world is that it's because he melted down some coins. So we're gonna go with that. So this whole comes in the wake of Joseph Valachi's damning testimony that had shed light on the mafia, an organization that had long been denied by everybody up to the president of the United States. The president of the United States would say, like, this is a bedtime story. It's not a real thing. There's no such thing as organized crime. Stop asking me about it. It's not true. It was around this time that people started to believe that the mafia really was an organization, not just a fairy tale, as they had been told by everybody that they're supposed to believe. Now, this is really bad for business. The ability to deny the existence of the mafia itself is what allowed this criminal organization to operate for as long as it did. They had to be able to say, there is no such thing as the mafia. I don't know what you're talking about. And after Valachi gave his testimony, they couldn't really do that anymore. Well, Joseph Colombo decided that he was going to try to bring the mafia back into the shadows after his son was arrested. He's done. He's done with this whole America acknowledging their existence thing. He doesn't want everybody to believe that there's a mafia. It's just not something he felt like dealing with. The Italian-American Civil Rights League, or as I'm going to start calling it, the IACRL, because it's just a freaking mouthful. So the IACRL would make the argument that the mafia, it doesn't exist. The FBI was just coming after hardworking, legitimate men. And they would say that these hardworking legitimate men were in this fantasy mafia that they had created so that they could arrest and jail these blue-collar, upstanding citizens. And why would they want to do that, you ask? Well, because they're Italian, obviously. And of course, the FBI is racist. Anybody that was Italian was targeted and destroyed by the FBI, regardless if they ever did anything wrong or not. The IACRL wanted to paint Italian-Americans as a downtrodden, 
persecuted class of honest individuals that were being stigmatized and discriminated against. Q M&Ms, have you ever been hated or discriminated against? I have. I've been protested and demonstrated against. So like, yeah, that's that's just, we are being discriminated against. The perfect example of this tyrannical government prosecuting the innocents? Joseph Colombo Jr. is right now at this very moment sitting in prison for the cold and calculating crime of melting down coins for resale in silver ingots. Who has ever been arrested for melting down coins? No one. But you know who is? Italians. Because they hate us. Now, before you know it, there is a social outcry. Politicians were at rallies screaming that their entire ethnic group was being stigmatized. Hundreds of people gathered to picket outside the FBI headquarters in New York City to fight back against their persecution. It literally got so rowdy and lasted for so long that the people that lived in the area went to court to request something be done because they wanted their peace and quiet back and they were just so tired of the picketing and the social outcry and the groups of people that were demonstrating in front of the FBI headquarters. Now, with the steam that Colombo had picked up, he goes and starts to plan their first official gathering. The first annual IACRL rally gathered in Columbus Square and garnered over 100,000 people. And this charade worked. After all the social outcry and the drama that was going on, the word mafia was in talks to be banned as a dirty word, making it a hate crime to utter it. And court personnel and police all over the country were ordered to strike that word from their vocabulary. They were not even allowed to utter the word mafia. And the crazy thing is, it worked. Joseph Colombo was being touted as a human rights humanitarian. Black tie events were held where A-list celebrities, including the infamously mobbed up Frank Sinatra, performed. And hundreds of thousands of dollars were donated to the cause of eradicating racial stereotypes. He threw himself a banquet where he gave a speech to 1,400 people and he told the audience, we are building a stairway to heaven. Columbo cried out on the stage, peace and brotherhood, that's all I seek. There is a conspiracy against all Italian Americans. Charges against his son were dropped after witnesses couldn't remember what happened anymore. But it had gone beyond that now. Now, Columbo was on a mission. They joined up with the Jewish Defense League and became fellow freedom fighters, which I think is pretty funny because what's another time that is recent to this that Italians famously banded together with Jewish people? Oh yeah, Murder Incorporated. Got it. But that was all lies. It never really happened. That's something that they made up to make Italian Americans look bad and claim that there was this mafia that never actually existed. So together, these groups are fellow freedom fighters and they are fighting for their human rights. 
In April of 1971, Joseph Gallo was released from prison. Gallo had been serving time for extortion charges related to the construction industry. Now, the world is a lot different than when he had gone in. The biggest difference? When Gallo went into jail, Perfaggi was still boss of the family. So this is like a whole different world. They've gone through two bosses at this point. Now, Colombo is reigning in power, and that's someone that Gallo doesn't get along with. He hates Perfaggi, and Perfaci and Colombo are like this. Another important person to him that had died while he was on the inside was his brother Larry, who had passed away in 1968. Now, while he was in prison, Gallo had formed alliances with a lot of black gangsters, and upon his release, he's going around and he's bragging about that. He's telling everybody who will listen that he's going to take advantage of these new alliances and use his new comrades to take out the leadership of the Colombo family. According to Gallo, the first Colombo war never actually ended. He says because he was inside, he didn't agree to the peace terms that were set when the first Colombo war ended. He demanded $100,000 as compensation from the mafia leadership for his time served in prison, as well as his dropping the war that he claims never ended. Gallo threatened to instigate another gang war if his demands weren't met. The 1963 peace agreement that was facilitated by Patriarca put an end to the fighting between the two factions of the Colombo family in 1963. To make peace, Colombo had given the Gallo faction $60,000 to put out on the street and make more money by loan sharking it out. He's like, hey, here's 60 grand. They could put it out for interest and make more money with it. He had also vowed to give four of the men in that faction that had been waiting a really long time to be made their buttons. So pretty much like, I'll make four of you. I'll make you made men. Gallo claimed that that peace agreement did not apply to him because he was in jail when it was made. He never agreed to those terms and... <laughs> it never happened. The men in the faction were behind Joey's reignition of the war because as much as Colombo made this peace agreement and it all sounded good and it was sparkling and rainbows and everything was going to be great, the men were still struggling. Those four men, one of them being Albert Gallo, who had been running the Gallo faction on his own since Larry died, were never made. So Colombo made a promise in 1963 he was going to give four of these guys their button, but they never got it. And what's left standing of the Gallo faction was in tethers. Albert, in his bid to get a button, had been eating shit from Columbo. He had been abiding by his rules. He was getting Columbo lavish gifts. And he was making people in the Gallo faction do the same. He wasn't fighting back to the stupid rules that he was being given. And one by one, men left the Gallo faction and just walked over to the Colombo side. Because things aren't great on the Gallo faction. There really wasn't any benefit to being in the Gallo faction anymore. And that pissed Joe the hell off. Gallo decided to declare that his faction was now the sixth family in New York. He was no longer under the Colombo family, and he starts making all the guys in his family on his own. There's one problem with that, though, and it's that none of his guys were legit Italians. Gallo said that he would find some faraway Italian ancestry in their past and not to worry about the fact that they weren't Italian. Now, how well do you think that went over with Carlo Gambino, 
the one that closed the books for like a majority of his time in Reign. Not very well. Things weren't going very well within the Gallo faction either. Joe had been gone for a long time. It felt like a lifetime ago that he was locked up while Perfacci still reigned. The faction was given orders not to do certain things under Columbo's leadership. They were ordered not to do any hijacking, securities frauds, drug dealing, anything that would lead them to having to do federal time. Colombo said that this was to avoid his men getting lengthy prison sentences because getting a lengthy prison sentence often led to people becoming rats. And that's the truth. But people in the Gallo faction wholeheartedly believed that that was just a lie. He wasn't worried about people ratting. He wasn't worried about people getting a lot of time. He just said that they couldn't do that stuff because he wanted to keep the Gallo faction poor and weak so that they couldn't ever gain steam again. With their number one gunner back in their ranks, they actually had a shot to gain back the glory and notoriety that they had before Joe Gallo went into prison the first time. When the Gallo faction was looked at as a real threat to the leadership of the Perfacci family, they were looked at as legitimate. They were looked at as something to be reckoned with. And since Joey Gallo left, they were a joke. And they didn't want to be a joke anymore. Colombo and Joseph Iacovelli tried to sit down with Gallo and offer him $1,000 to abide by the peace treaty that had been written in 1963. But Gallo laughs in their face. He's like, yeah, $1,000. No, I will take $100,000. You give me $100,000, I'll drop the whole thing. They try to hand him the $1,000, like, no, this is all you're getting. And he takes the envelope and he throws it back in their faces. Now, oh, it is on. Gallo is going to attack the Colombo family at every angle he could. He's pissed. A thousand dollars? I just did like 12 or 13 years inside. And you're going to tell me a thousand dollars is what you're going to give me? My faction is in shambles right now. A thousand dollars? That's what I'm worth? A thousand? Cool. Watch this. Watch this! On June 28th, 1971, the second annual Italian-American Civil Rights League held their rally in Manhattan, in Union Square, the same place that the first rally had been held. Joseph Colombo Sr., the founder and leader of the League, and a prominent figure in the Colombo family, who was actually the boss of the family at the time, was shot and severely wounded during the event. The shooter was quickly identified as Jerome Johnson, a black ex-convict. Johnson was immediately shot dead by Colombo's bodyguards in the chaotic aftermath of the shooting. Joseph Colombo actually survived the attack, but he was left paralyzed and in a comatose state until his death on May 22, 1978. So he died seven years later, but he was in a coma the entire time until he died. Police investigations into the shooting determined that Jerome Johnson was the sole shooter and he was the only person that was responsible for the attack. The motive behind Johnson's actions appeared to be his own personal grudge against the League and its leader, possibly unrelated to organized crime at all. And that would make a little bit of sense because pretty recently at all Italian American Civil Rights Leagues, there had been black activists that had been protesting against the Italian American Civil Rights League. They viewed it as something that was against their own civil rights fights. So they were not getting along. The two factions did not work together. The only faction that the Italian Americans worked with was the Jewish Americans. So it's not so far-fetched that somebody could 
use their own personal reasons to come after Columbo. Now, even though law enforcement is fully, fully believing that Jerome Johnson worked on his own and did it for his own personal reasons, the mafia, as well as all the law enforcement that's actually looking into organized crime, none of them believe that it was Jerome Johnson. They all believe that it was Joseph Gallo that orchestrated the hit. And I'm sure even the guys that said that it was just Jerome Johnson, I'm sure even they believed that Gallo had something to do with this. But they just can't publicly say that because they don't have enough evidence to arrest Joe Gallo. And if they come out like, oh, we fully believe it was Joe Gallo, but we're not going to do anything about it. Like, what? If they're in a, they're between a rock and a hard place right now. They can't really come out and say like, oh yeah, we know it was Joe Gallo, but uh, <laughs> we're not going to do anything about it. Sucks to suck, bruh. In appearance, there was an extensive investigation that police ended up concluding that Johnson worked alone to attack Columbo. But nobody in the underground believed that for one second. No one did. Everyone in the Columbo family believed that it was Gallo that ordered the hit, especially since everybody had heard him yelling about how he was going to kill all the Columbo leadership almost immediately after getting out of jail. And he had been running around telling people like, oh, I'm going to use my new friends to take them out. And it just so happens that it happened. As far as the Columbo sons go, the three Columbo sons pled guilty in 1986 to federal racketeering charges, and they all went to prison. Anthony Columbo declared, I have not admitted that I am a member of organized crime. After Columbo's shooting, the IACRL slowly petered off and ceased to exist. Even though it was Anthony Columbo that had been at the helm of the whole project, he didn't really want much to do with it after his father was shot and basically killed. So when he was arrested and went to jail and said, I have not admitted that I am a member of organized crime, that's pretty much just running off of the IACRL. Like the IACRL swears that the mafia doesn't exist. There's no such thing as organized crime. And that's why you would hear him say something like that. On November 11, 1971, Persico went on trial in state court for multiple charges. The charges included 37 counts of extortion, usury, coercion, and conspiracy. And these are all related to a loan sharking operation that he was operating in Manhattan out of a fur shop. The prosecution brought forth 37 different charges related to his involvement in this criminal enterprise and also extortion. However, Despite the severity of the charges and the substantial evidence that it seemed like they had against him, the outcome of the trial was pretty surprising. On December 8th, 1971, a jury acquitted Carmine Persico of all charges. The acquittal was a significant setback for law enforcement and a huge victory for the Colombo family. One of the critical factors that led to his acquittal was the testimony of the prosecution's witnesses. They had 12 witnesses all 12 witnesses who had testified against him claimed that they could not identify Persico as having been involved in the loan sharking operation or any other criminal activities alleged in the charges. 
The lack of identification by the witnesses weakened the prosecution's case significantly, and it made it very challenging to prove that Persico had any kind of direct involvement beyond a reasonable doubt. Obviously, these witnesses had been either threatened or paid off, and it ended up working out for him this time. So now comes the time when the Second Gallo War, or the Second Columbo War, would kick off. So Gallo has now very publicly assassinated the sitting boss of the family. There's a few issues here. Number one, he did this without the permission of the commission. Number two, he did this in front of Columbo's family. His wife and kids were in attendance at the rally. And that's a huge no-no in the mafia. Men, sometimes they'll lie in wait for weeks, months, years, as long as it takes to get their hands on the man that they're going after when they are not with their family. You do not do shit in front of a man's wife and kids. It's legit been an unwritten rule forever. You ever hear of a mafia boss or a mafia anybody being killed while they're sitting at a table with their wife and kids? No, because it's not done. So the fact that Gallo had just done this in front of Columbo's family has some serious people seriously pissed off. So now everybody thinks that they know that he did this, but at the end of the day, Gallo is unconcerned. I feel like Gallo has a lot in common with Carmine Galante here, and I get the two of them confused because I feel like they're equally as dumb, honestly. I did an episode on Carmine Galante, I'll link it in the description, but... Galante, he went out and did really bad shit. <laughs> and then anybody in their right minds would be afraid. Like, very, very, very afraid. Galante went and did newspapers and interviews and pretty much any way that he could get his voice out there. Pretty much daring anybody in the mafia to kill him. He gets on air, he gets with the media, with reporters, and they are like, yo, like, are you scared like you should be this is not cool man we've seen this happen a lot of times you should be scared and he's like nah nobody's got the balls to come after me no one's gonna kill me everybody's way too scared well guess who got touched now gallo he is going around and he's swearing to anybody that will listen that he had nothing to do with the murder of colombo he is not out here claiming credit for this one which is a pretty big piece of evidence that he didn't do it because he would tell anyone who would listen that he was responsible for the killing of anastasia like he was not shy about that he was all out here like you could call us the barbershop quartet. He was proud as shit as killing Anastasia. So why would he be going around saying, that was not me, I didn't do it? Like, why would he do that if he did it? According to the Gallo faction, they went out and they did their own investigation into the shooter, Jerome Johnson, and why he did it. And according to the Gallo faction, it was actually Tony's shots about a Marco that sent Jerome to the rally. They claim about a Marco had beef with Colombo because the rules that Colombo had come out with, no doing serious crimes that would get you serious time, well, that had a pretty significant impact on Tony Sharks' biggest rackets. He looked at it as Colombo was squeezing him for money that he didn't have. And pretty much what they're saying is, hey, Tony Schatz had the same issues with Colombo as Gallo had with Perfacci. So if anybody had a reason to do this, it was Tony Schatz. It wasn't us. It was nobody here. They also claimed that the hit being carried out by a black man was a carefully orchestrated plan 
to put the blame on Joe Gallo. According to Pete the Greek Diopolis, Tony Schatz knew that Joe Gallo was publicly befriending Black men that he had been in prison with. So if Schatz took a guy from bed the area where he did most of his illegal gambling and had far further connections with the African-American community than Joe Gallo ever did. So now if he did this, he knew that the blame would fall on Gallo and the family would go after Gallo for retribution and never come after him. According to the Gallo faction, it was a win-win for Tony Schatz, who still laid the blame of his father's execution on Joey's shoulders. So pretty much to Tony Schatz, he gets rid of Joseph Colombo, who's telling him he can't do the shit that he's doing. He gets rid of Joe Gallo, who he's had beef with since day one, and nobody comes after him for it. It's a win-win-win. It's pretty crazy to think about because at the end of part one, we go over how Tony Schatz had switched sides and he had began hanging out with the Gallo crew. When I saw Pete the Greek saying that Tony Schatz hated Joey, it kind of like all clicked together in my head. Tony Schatz only really went over to the Gallo crew once Joey Gallo was in prison. Before he went to jail, he participated in the attempt to murder one of the Gallo brothers. So when I was talking in part one about how it's really unclear what happened between August and October that made Tony switch over sides, more than likely, that was it. Joey Gallo was taken out of the picture and put into prison. And Tony Schatz was friends with everybody else from the Gallo faction, but just hated Joe Gallo because he blamed Joe Gallo for killing his father. So now Gallo is not worried at all because he's like, well, I didn't do it. And they can't prove that I did it. They can't come after me for a murder I didn't commit. So he's sitting around and he's like, no, I got nothing to worry about. Nobody's going to do anything to me because I didn't do it. The police did the investigation and said I didn't do it. My faction did the investigation. They said it was Tony Schatz. Nobody can actually lay the blame for this murder at my feet. I didn't do it. And Gallo has way too much trust that mafia members will do the right thing that they'll do all the research in the world and figure out the right answer before going in guns blazing. Now, he is going around and he's hitting the town, he's chilling, and he's going to movie premieres, he's hanging out with Jerry Orbach and a lot of A-list celebrities, he's at the Copacabana just living this boy's best life. And he hasn't been touched, and to him that's evidence that the Mafia knows he didn't do it. After the shooting and subsequent paralysis of Colombo crime boss Joseph Colombo at the Italian-American Civil Rights League rally in June of 1971, Joseph Brancato, the family's underboss, assumed the role of acting boss. When tensions are now escalating, Albert Gallo sought revenge against those that he believed were responsible for the assassination attempt on his brother. On April 7, 1972, the conflict reached its tragic climax when Joseph Gallo was shot and killed while celebrating his birthday at Umberto's Clam House in Manhattan's Little Italy. I did an episode on Joe Gallo, so if you want to know all the details that go on and to his death and everything that went on with him, go check that out. I'll link it below in the description. That's actually a really interesting story. If you want to hear some crazy shit, go watch the Joe Gallo episode, but I'm not going to go all the way over it. Just know that he was killed in Umberto's clam house, and not only was he killed there, he's killed while he's celebrating his birthday, and he's sitting in this restaurant with his wife and stepkid. It's widely speculated about who actually 
did this to Gallo. Of course, the consensus is that it was the Columbos, and they were doing this in retaliation for the hit that was ordered on Joseph Colombo by who they believed to be Joe Gallo himself. Joseph Luparelli, a Colombo associate who would later become an informant, saw Gallo enter Umberto's, and according to him, he personally reached out to Iacovelli to tell him where he was. Luparelli claims that he hit up Philip Gambino, Carmine Sonny Pinto DiBiase, and two other men within the Patriarca family to kill Gallo. Luparelli says that he was the getaway driver, and it was four men that he had in the car with him that got out of the car, went in, killed Gallo, and got back into the car that he drove off. The only problem with Luparelli's account is that the police say it's a complete lie. The police suspect that there was only one shooter based on the crime scene reconstruction and eyewitness testimony, but police put out a fake story to the media saying that there were three shooters. They did this in order to be able to immediately dismiss any claims or confessions to the crime that claimed that there was multiple shooters. And Luparelli swears that there were three shooters. There were four people in the car. He was one of them. He stayed in the car. Three dudes got out, went into the restaurant, killed him, blah, blah, blah. Now, Luparelli is following the fake story that the cops put out. And now, immediately, the police brush him off as a liar, because they're like, we know there was only one shooter. We put that out as fake news. And you just went along with the fake news. So you're a liar. They think that Luparelli came forward with these claims in order to avoid a mafia war. First of all, Umberto's was a Genovese family-owned restaurant. If somebody didn't take public claim to this murder, it would force the Colombo's hands into attacking the Genovese family. Because it would look like the Genovese family authorized a killing of a Colombo family member. Even though the Colombos hate the Gallows, it's still somebody in their family. But if Colombo bosses had somebody claim the murder was spontaneously ordered by one of their own, they wouldn't have to go to war with the Genovese. So that's their thinking. Now, aside from the hit of Joseph Colombo, this was the first mafia hit ever carried out in the presence of the gangster's family. Colombo had been shot in front of his family, but Colombo was alone on the stage and his family was in the audience. Even though they were very traumatized by watching him die, they were never actually in any danger. Obviously, the hit on Gallo was pulled in front of his family because he did the hit on Colombo in front of Colombo's family, but like when Gallo was shot at, he flipped a table up in front of his wife and stepkid to try to protect them. Like, his wife and kid almost caught bullets. It was always a solid rule in the crime families that mafia members, even snitches, their families were kept far outside of the life, including murders. A lot of families of snitches even continued to be taken care of financially by the families after they were killed. So it's really surprising that this all goes down in front of Gallo's sister, wife, and stepdaughter. And according to them, it kind of makes it a little more obvious that this was a spontaneous hit rather than like a commission-sponsored hit. In other words, it was a crime of opportunity rather than a crime of like calculated planning. Murder two, not murder one. Coincidentally, one of the people at Umberto's at that ungodly hour of 4.30 in the morning when Gallo was shot was an anonymous man who went on to become a New York Times editor. He claims that Frank Sheeran, a hitman and a labor union boss, was the shooter. 
Frank Sheeran is who the movie The Irishman was based off of, which is absolutely awesome because that's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. I love The Irishman. Sheeran corroborated this, giving a deathbed confession to being the lone gunman to kill Gallo, and that Russell Buffalino had ordered him to do it to try to quell the flashy lifestyle and attraction of attention towards the mafia as a whole that Joey Gallo had been doing. You know, he's going to the Copacabana and making movies, and Russell Buffalino was not about that life, and he ordered Frank Sheeran to take out Gallo. So it wasn't even about the Columbo hit. Sheeran's confession was met with a lot of skepticism from cops as well. And Michael Franzese or Franzese said that it wasn't true. He was talking about the movie The Irishman and said that Sheeran did not commit the murder because he knows for a fact what happened there, given that he was involved with the mafia at the time. But he doesn't say what happened. He just says that he knows what happened and it wasn't Sheeran. Jeffy, Gallo's wife, and the one that was thrown under the table to protect her, claims that it was multiple men, all short and Italian-looking, that carried out the hit. Frank Sheeran is 6'4 and Irish. But I think Frank Sheeran looks Italian, so I don't know that the fact that he's Irish has anything to do with it. I mean, you look at him and you can't really tell that he's Irish. He looks Italian. But he's 6'4, and that's a lot different than a short little Italian dude. <laughs> now, the Gallo crew wanted revenge after his death. Carmela, Gallo's sister, told his lifeless body at his funeral that the streets would run red with blood. The war that came from his murder lasted from 1971 to 1975 and consisted of the Colombo family splitting down the middle, half supporting Persico and the other half siding with the Gallo crew. In August of 1972, Albert Gallo sent a hitman to a Manhattan restaurant to kill Alphonse Persigo, Carmine's brother, or Alley Boy Persigo, Alphonse T. Persigo, Carmine's son, or Little Alley Boy Persigo, a Colombo soldier, Charles Charlie the Moose Panarella, and Gennaro Jerry Lang Langella, Alley Boy's bodyguard, who were all currently dining there. Since the gunman was from Vegas and wasn't from the New York Mafia, remember that they were no longer with the Columbos, so they don't really just have the ability to pick a hitman out of the family, so they have to go to Vegas to get a hitman. So because they went to Vegas to get a hitman that had no idea who any of these people that they're trying to kill are, the guy from Vegas did not recognize the Mafia members. What actually happened that day in the Neapolitan Noodle Restaurant was that four men, again, Alley Boy, Little Alley Boy, Jerry Lang, and Joseph Iacovelli, not Charlie the Moose, it was Joseph Iacovelli, they schedule a sit-down in this little hole-in-the-wall restaurant which you have to walk down a set of stairs to get into. So if you're walking down the street, you can't see who's in the restaurant. You have to walk down the set of stairs in order to get in. So it's not like you could just be passing by and look in and see little alley boy sitting there. So these guys, they walk into the bar, they sit at the bar and they start talking. They're discussing what they're going to do about this avenging Gallo crew, who's making it very well known that they're out for blood and they want revenge for the murder of their leader. As they're sitting there drinking, they're like, you know what? We're hungry. Let's go grab a table. Let's grab some food and we'll keep having this conversation. So they do just that. They stand up, they move over to a table in the corner of the restaurant 
and they continue on with their conversation. Well, without their knowledge, the restaurant had been scouted a few minutes after they entered the, the restaurant by Bobby Darrow, a gallo soldier. And Darrow goes back to these shooters who, again, they're from Vegas. They don't know these guys that they're trying to kill from a hole in the wall. So they have no idea. Goes to tell the guys that are from Vegas, like, hey, there's four dudes sitting at the bar and that's them. These guys have like a picture, but who knows how old these pictures are, whatever. And he tells the scout, like, yeah, they're sitting at the bar drinking and they're all talking. They're sitting here, here, here and here. Well, four businessmen in Wall Street suits had taken their place at the bar and they're sitting there chilling, have a conversation, they're drinking, they're celebrating the engagement of one of these men's daughters. When the shooters come into the bar, they see four dudes sitting at a bar, they're in suits, and they're where Darrow said that they'd be sitting. Now, bang, bang, boom, done. We've got two dead innocent civilians and two very badly wounded civilians that have nothing to do with crime or anything while these mafia members eat in the corner of the restaurant unharmed. After the Neapolitan noodle, Joseph Iacovelli, the dude that is currently sitting as the boss of the family, dips out. He's like, fuck this. He nopes the hell out. He's like, I did not sign on for this. The Gallo men are coming after me. I've already been kidnapped by these people because remember Joseph Iacovelli, he's one of the four dudes that got kidnapped by the Gallo crew. They almost got me at the restaurant. Like if we hadn't just so happened to get up and move to a table, we'd be dead right now. I'd be dead. I'm not doing this. I don't want to be the boss of this family. No. So he's like, nope, I don't want anything to do with this. If that hitman was halfway decent at his job, I'd be dead right now. I'm not doing it anymore. You can't make me. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. I'm not doing it. I'm out. He, nope. So Alfred Minio, the family's underboss, makes it clear that he has no interest in taking over anyway, because who wants to? This is a family at war. Anybody that takes the position of boss of the family, they're screwed. You're done. Now, this is a huge, huge deal at the time. If you think about it, things are going pretty well for the mafia right now. Colombo's IACRL has successfully removed the word mafia from the mainstream public. Godfather 2 was currently playing in theaters across the country, a movie specifically avoiding the use of the word mafia, which is looked at as a slur. Like, if you go back and you watch Godfather 2, you will not hear the word mafia once. And that's because of Joseph Colombo. Apart from the recent deaths of Joseph Colombo and Joseph Gallo, the country is just really enamored by the mafia. They're starstruck by them. Known mafia members are out there signing autographs. Like, Carmine Persico is going out with A-list celebrities because they want to become more well-known. Like, mafia members are movie stars right now. They're not getting in trouble. They're, everything's going great for them. According to America, they're the devil-may-care bad boys who really are good people below the criminal charges. And then this happens. Four innocent men are sitting in a bar drinking, and two of them are killed, and two of them are very badly hurt in a mafia hit gone wrong. And all of a sudden, every New Yorker, hell, every American, is having their entire view of the mafia change. That could have been them sitting there in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
killed in an ongoing war that's been playing out in the newspapers for 15 years. Now, these mafia gangsters, they're not the bad boys with a good heart anymore. No. They're dangerous to the public. They're no longer only killing their own fellow gangsters who have mile-long rap sheets. Now, innocent bystanders are being caught in the crosshairs. This makes the job of the prosecution, who's trying to put these guys in jail, and as they're being taken in, the public is yelling at them that the cops are bastards for villainizing the Italian culture and Italian-Americans. It makes it a lot easier for these cops, for these prosecution. You gotta think, the viewpoint of the country is very important. If the country is looking at mafia members and they're just these gods that everybody loves, how easy do you think it's going to be to convince a jury of 12 people that they're guilty of something? It's it's hard. It's really hard. And then on top of that, you have these guys getting arrested. Carmine Persico gets arrested. As they're walking him into the, the station, you've got people picketing and telling the cops that they're the scumbags for arresting the murderers. It's just all kinds of backwards. So now that this happens and everybody can see themselves or their brother or their husband or their father being the one that was sitting there uninvolved in crime but killed anyway, it makes it a lot easier once their viewpoints are changed. Once the, the public isn't obsessed and in love with the mafia and not giving guilty verdicts and not supporting them as they're arrested and doting on them. America has had a very biased past <laughs> with the mafia. They've always loved it. And that makes it very hard for cops, for prosecution. Think about witnesses. If you've got a town filled with people that are in love with the mafia and they see something bad go down, don't you think they're a lot less likely to become witnesses and help police put these guys in jail? If they're out here like, oh, but they're just so dreamy. Like, they're not going to do it. Prosecution and the law, they need you to hate the mafia. They need you to. If you don't, it makes their job a lot harder. The New York mayor held a press conference and stated that the romanticization of the mafia must be stopped and these gangsters need to be run out of town. Now, Joey Brancato, who is currently an acting capo for John Franzisi, Franzis is doing 50 years in Leavenworth for bank robbery. Brancato stepped into the role of acting boss, but he made it extremely clear the entire time that he wants no part of being the actual boss. But he was going to do this, but it was a very temporary basis that he was doing it. It seems like the entire elite of the Colombo family was cursed. And they were literally picking at straws trying to get somebody to lead the family. So it's not surprising that nobody wanted anything to do with being boss. So Broncado, he's like, fine, I will step in. I will deal with this. It's temporary. I will not take on the position of boss. I don't want to be boss. I don't want it, but I'll do it temporarily. I love this family. I don't want to see anything bad happen. I'll take the job on temporarily. Broncado took on the job in order to stop the Second Colombo War, which is wreaking havoc in the family. Brancato, along with the other bosses of the other families, or the commission, negotiated a deal where Albert Gallo and the rest of his crew were able to join the Genovese family peacefully, and that would end the four-year-long war that most people just started calling the Gallo Wars. 
As soon as that deal was struck, Brancato stepped down as acting boss and went back to Long Island to run his crew. He noped out just as quickly as Joe Iacovelli did. Nobody wanted this job. Since nobody was left to rule the family, Carmine Persigo was given the job of boss of the family, but the problem is, he's in prison. But because nobody else wanted this job, they were like, all right, Carmine Persigo's the boss of the family. You can do it from prison, bro. Like, take it. You take it. He'll do it from prison. Doesn't matter that he's in jail. He's still doing it. So Carmine Persigo is now the boss of the family. He puts Thomas DeBilla in place as the acting boss. He also promoted Alphonse Alleyboy Persigo, his brother, not his son, who was fresh out of jail from a 17-year-long sentence. And he's the one that had been almost killed at the restaurant with his son and the four people were killed, blah, blah. And then he makes him the consigliere. And he moves Anthony Tony Schatz about a Marco to underboss. So now there's a whole new structure to the leadership of the Colombo family because Carmine Persigo just stepped up as the boss. So you've got Carmine Persigo as the boss of the family, but he's in jail. So Thomas DeBella is the acting boss on the streets. Alleyboy Persigo, his brother, is the consigliere. And you've got Anthony Tony Schatz of Batamarco is the underboss. Tony Schatz is the one that flipped sides. He tried to kill Larry Gallo, and then he went to the Gallo faction, and then supposedly he's responsible for the killing of Joseph Colombo. Blah, blah, blah. Tony Schatz about Marco is a very interesting dude. I really like how much I went into him in this episode. Like, I did a lot on him. He's super interesting. So now he's the underboss. This man is like an enigma, <laughs> I swear. I would love to know how he is simultaneously in the Gallo crew and the Persico crew. No idea. So now, Carmine Persigo is already in prison for an unrelated crime of hijacking and loan sharking, and he's doing an eight-year sentence. But he's able to lead the family from within prison. Obviously, Joseph Colombo, who had been the boss, but had recently been shot multiple times and is paralyzed and in a coma, he couldn't run the family and nobody else wanted to. So Carmine Persigo it is. Persigo got out of jail in 1979, but he was sent right back in on conspiracy and racketeering charges in 1981 for another five years. But honestly, in jail, out of jail, didn't really make much of a difference. Carmine was the boss of the family. He stayed boss of the family, so it really didn't matter to him if he was in or out. Vincenzo Eloy, Carlo Gambino's godson, took over as the acting boss while Persigo was in prison. So I guess Thomas Dabilla, he didn't want to do it this second time. So like... Dabilla was the acting boss while when Carmine first became the boss of the family. He gets out, so now he is the acting boss of the family. And then he goes back in in 1981, and instead of making Dabilla the acting boss again, he makes Vincenzo Alloy the acting boss of the family. The Gallo crew still is not stopping in their pursuit of revenge for Joe's death. It didn't really end up working in his favor, though, because... At the end of the day, the tally was extremely one-sided when you look at this Gallo War. Outside of the mistaken identity shooting, which didn't end up killing anybody in Persico's faction, it only ended up killing innocent civilians, the Colombo side of the war hadn't lost anybody. Nobody. Nobody died from Colombo's side, or Persico's side. During that time in the war, Gennaro Ciprio was killed, and people thought that he was a victim of the war, that the Gallows had killed him because he was on Persigo's side. But that wasn't true. Persigo's men actually killed him themselves because he was sneaking around and giving the Gallows information. So yeah, one of Persigo's boys died, but the Gallows didn't kill him. The, 
the Columbos killed him. They didn't want him anymore, so they killed him. So that's not a loss. During that same time, Persico's faction took out seven men in Gallo's faction. And the other 16 murders that had been attributed to the war weren't regarding the war at all. So according to, let's say, public record, there is seven deaths and another 16 deaths. The seven deaths that were on the side of the Gallo faction, that really was from the war. That was who Persico had taken out in this time of war. The other 16, they really weren't in the war. A lot of times when there's a mafia war going on, gangsters take this time to just kill indiscriminately anyone that they have beef with. It's a very opportune time to step in and be like, oh, I've wanted to kill you for a long time, but I just haven't wanted to go through the hassle of going to the commission and getting permission to do it. So what do they do? You know, oh, it's wartime, and now you can kill without getting permission. And these 16 deaths, were that's where that came from. It wasn't attributed to the war. It was just easier to kill people during time of war because they didn't have to go get permission. So this is the part where it gets a little bit confusing. And to be 100% honest, even I'm a little bit confused. I'm not 100% sure exactly what's going on here. So what it seems like is right before Carmine Persico was officially given the boss position, there was somebody else that was in place as boss of the family, and that was Thomas DeBella. Now, Thomas DeBella is boss of the family, but he's just kind of a puppet for Carmine Persico. Now, remember I had said that Tony Schatz was given the position of underboss, but the problem is, is that this whole thing with DeBella is about to go down, and that position of underboss is going to be left open. Now, let's go over what happened with DeBella before Carmine Persico was officially made the boss of the family. Because again, remember that Carmine Persico is sitting in jail. So right now, Dibella is the boss. Carmine Persico would come out of jail, become the underboss, and then just immediately become the boss of the family. Later on, Gennaro, Jerry Lang, Langella would become the underboss of the family, filling the role that Tony Schatz had been holding. And we're going to go over this right here. So now the story is that Thomas DeBilla is boss of the family. Now, Tony Schatz, who is Anthony Abadamarco, Tony Schatz fled when one of his allies, Salvatore Albanese, in this revolt that he had put together to overthrow DeBella and take the position of boss of the family, had disappeared after going to a conciliation meeting with supporters of DeBella. The revolt was initially held because Debella had appeared, at least to Tony Schatz and Joseph Iacovelli, to be favoring Carmine Persico's crew because, again, Debella is boss of the family, but really he's just a puppet for Carmine Persico. Persico's in jail, so he's not taking the official role of boss of the family, but he's boss of the family because Debella's doing whatever he tells him to. So now Persico's crew being run currently by Persico's brother, Alley Boy, while he's in jail, is being treated way better than any other crew in the family. So Tony Schatz revolted with Salvatore Albanese and Joseph Iacovelli. Now, apparently, Dabella had only given 33 buttons out in the family since the books had been open after Gambino died. I go over how the books had been shut for a really long time in my video about Joseph Gallo, so if you're interested in that, go watch the Gallo video. But the books were closed for a really long time under Gambino. He did not let any new members be made. If you weren't made, you just weren't made. You did not become a made man for a long time because Gambino 
got pissed and shot them. After he died and the books were opened again, Debilla had given 33 buttons out. 15 of those buttons had gone to crew members of Persico's crew, leaving only 18 buttons for the rest of the family because remember, Persico's crew is only one crew in the family. This family is huge. So it's appearing really unfair. According to Abadamarco, Iacovelli, and Albanese, this left the Persico crew growing strong enough to try to take over rackets that belonged to other crews in the family. It's just giving the Persico crew all the power, and that's not fair. So they go to the commission with this complaint, and they request that Dabella be removed as boss of the family because he's not really being the boss of the family. He's just doing whatever Carmine Persico tells him to do. And that's messed up because if Carmine Persico was the boss of the family, he wouldn't be doing shit like this because it would be viewed as favoritism. But because he has Dabilla doing his bidding, it doesn't seem to be favoritism because Dabilla's not in Carmine Persico's crew. So it's kind of the best of the best situation for Carmine Persico right now. The commission refused this request and they pretty much told them to handle the issue amongst themselves. Now, after this commission meeting, Debella's people put out an invitation for a sit-down to resolve this issue, swearing that anybody that attended one of these meetings would leave unharmed. Tony Schatz and Iacovelli are like, uh, yeah, fuck that, no thanks. But Albanese is like, uh, did you not hear them? They swore that they weren't gonna hurt anybody. Come on, guys. Let's at least go hear them out. Come on, I'm, I'm gonna go. I believe in them. Tony Schatz and Iacovelli are like, uh, dude, are you kidding? That's a terrible idea. They're gonna kill you. Albanese is like, no, they're guys in our own family. They never do that. I'm gonna go watch. This is gonna be fine. I'm gonna fix everything, guys. And he's got like this little doe-eyed enthusiasm. He agreed to go to dinner with a few members of the Persico group. Albanese was believed to have been murdered after he had not been seen or heard from in over a month. And that's when Tony Schatz headed for the hills, leaving his spot as underboss of the family opened, and that's when Jerry Lang stepped in. Tony Schatz handed over his lucrative gambling operations to the people below him, and he went to upstate New York. During this time, Iacovelli, he pretty much hunkered down. He really wasn't seen outside of his own home or those of his close relatives. This family is just marred with civil revolts. Like, there is always some kind of war within their own family going on. You don't really see that in the Gambino family. Like, you don't see that in other families, but in this family, you've got the Gallo Wars. The Gallows are Columbos. That's a civil war. And then you've got this, where Tony Schatz and Iacovelli, these important guys in the family, are revolting against the leadership of the family. Not a very good family, man. Langella was a trusted and influential figure in the family, and he supervised various labor rackets, including their interests in the Concrete Club, an association of mobsters included in controlling the concrete industry in New York City. Jerry Lang was officially given his button in early 1976, and his crew was filled with some hard-hitting names, including Joseph Iacovelli, Joey Brancato, and Benedetto Alloy. Making him the underboss of the family was seen as an olive branch, trying to quell the issues that had stemmed from Dabella's leadership. And that's something you'll see happen a lot of times when there's some kind of unrest. They'll take somebody from the crew of the, the ones that are going against them and put them in a position of power. So they didn't want another Gallo War. They didn't want another civil war. So 
what do they do? They take Jerry Lang, who was close with the people who had revolted, and make him the underboss. So it appears that that faction would have some say in the leadership of the family. One of the key sources of revenue and influence for organized crime families was their control over labor unions. Langella exerted control over the Cement and Concrete Workers District Council, Local 6A, a powerful labor union representing workers in the cement and concrete industry. Through his influence over the union, Langella and the Colombo family were able to extort money from construction companies and manipulate labor contracts to their advantage. While Carmine Persico was serving his prison sentence, the family continued its criminal activities under the leadership of Alphonse and the support of Langella and Theodore Persico, another brother of Carmine's. The family's operations, including loan sharking, extortion, and illegal gambling, remained really profitable, and it ensured the continuation of their criminal empire, which is really hard when their boss is in prison. The 1970s were a really turbulent time for the Colombo family. There was a lot of internal power struggles, violent confrontations, and leadership changes. The Gallo Wars, this Tony Schatz about a Marco issue, there's a lot going on internally in the family, and that's not good. Despite the challenges, though, the family managed to maintain its criminal activities and its control over the labor unions, which would ensure a steady stream of illicit income. The family's activities during this period attracted significant law enforcement attention and resulted in numerous arrests and convictions. So like a lot of these guys went to jail. A lot of these guys went to jail. Now again, in 1979, Carmine Persico was released from federal prison after serving his eight-year sentence. His return marked the reestablishment of his position as the official boss of the Colombo family. But even with him back in power, Alphonse and Langella continued to have a lot of power within the family. So it's not like he came out and Langella just like ceased to exist. Like he still mattered. In 1981, Carmine Persico faced legal troubles yet again. Just as I said, he came out in 79 and went right back in in 81. He pled guilty to a conspiracy charge related to an attempted bribery of an internal revenue service agent while he was in federal custody. The case involved allegations that Persico had sought to bribe the agent from 1977 to 1978 with the intention of securing an early release from prison. The evidence against Persico was really substantial, and it included a crucial piece of evidence, a recorded conversation of him offering the IRS agent a bribe. Really, what are you going to do to get out of that? Like, you're done. In the recorded conversation, Persico can be heard offering the agent $250,000 in exchange for using his influence to secure an early release from prison. It's not uncommon that gangsters would do this. People in organized crime very often offer bribes as to get out of prison. Like that's not that's not something that doesn't happen. It just so happens that he stumbled on an IRS agent that didn't want a bribe and he wanted this guy in prison. On November 9th, 1981, Carmine Persico was sentenced to five years in federal prison for the bribery conspiracy. This is a huge setback because they had just had all of this internal struggle. Tony Schatz is gone. This had just the leadership of the family had just been reestablished, and now he's going back to jail. No bueno. But even while serving the sentence, he remained a very influential member in the family and always continued to be boss. 
He continued running the family's operations from behind bars, using trusted associates and family members to maintain control over the entire family. All right, so that is where I am going to end today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed and that you'll come back for part four, where I'm going to do my best to make it the last episode of this Persico series. We're going to discuss the Colombo trials and the Mafia Commission trials, and we're going to wrap up this four-part series. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!